So you think that uh, because those are southern states, uh, which were cotton-producing states, that were the states where most of the slavery uh, occurred, this is a long-term consequence still of uh, slavery? Absolutely. Um, Even today, we have uh, several states that still have not expanded Medicaid. In many of these states, things have gotten to the point where many of the hospitals in some of the rural areas have had to close down because of lack of Medicaid expansion. These are also the states with the worst overall health status, the widest disparities, and the um, largest uh, black populations. Starting under slavery and continuing into the 20th century is the belief that the black body is somehow different biologically from a white body. And a member of physicians, for example, thought that black people in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, would be doomed to to extinction because they couldn't survive except under slavery. Hello and welcome. This is the October 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Since the first sale of African captives in 1619, North America has had about 250 years when slavery was legal and 150 years during which slavery was abolished. In this podcast, I discuss whether this slavery past has left an imprint on public health in the United States. I also trace the mechanism for which the impacts of this history can still be observed today. My guests are Thomas Leviste, Dean of the Tulane School of Public Health, and Susan Reverby, Historian of Public Health at Wellesley College, Massachusetts. With Tom Leviste, I discuss why access to public health services were not immediately available to former slaves after the abolition of uh, slavery, and how this related to the pace of political and civic emancipation of people of African-American descent. With Susan Reverby, I trace the last 150 years since the Civil War when public health failed to address the needs of former slaves and their offspring. The music that you just heard is by the Afro-Peruvian band Chinchivi. Where is my land, where is my home are the opening words of the song Raices, which means roots in Spanish. And the song is about Africa slavery, and America. You can listen to the whole song at the end of this podcast. I am Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are September 2nd, 2019. I first reached out to Tom Leviste. Hello, Tom. Hello, good morning. So, Tom, uh, we're here to talk about, you know, 400 years since Jamestown. Can you uh, just remind us uh, what happened in 1619? Okay, well, in 1619, the first 20, well, the, the, docu- the documented records say 20 and odd. So, roughly 20 Africans um, became the first 
permanent African resident brought here uh, by a Dutch ship, a Dutch man of war ship called the White Lion. Um, and they were not slaves, but they were, um, they had been captured and they were in bondage. At the time, they were uh, indentured servants, uh, which was the way that most white settlers came to the United States as indentured servants. Over time, um, this concept of lifetime slavery evolved. In 1640, we get the first legal precedent to establish slavery when um, the governor of Virginia, whose name was um, Francis Wyatt, presided over a case where three indentured servants from Virginia escaped to Maryland. One was African and the other two were uh, white. They were both, they, they escaped together. Um, they were captured, brought back to Virginia and brought to trial. The two white um, indentured servants were sentenced to additional years of servitude, but the black indentured servants, whose name was John Punch, John Punch was sentenced to a lifetime as a slave. So 1640 was the first legal designation of slavery. 1619 was the first uh, uh, Africans that were brought here in bondage. Mm -hmm. So 400 years ago, more or less, I mean, there was the beginning of, uh, of slavery in North yeah. America. Since then, there's been a lot of social and political progress, I would say. There's been uh, the abolition of slavery uh, during the Civil War. There's been the Civil Rights Acts. There's been the Voting Rights Acts. There's been uh, the election of a, of a president of, of uh, African-American descent. But do you think that the progresses in public health have been proportional to that. Many of those same policies that you that you talked about were implemented, but there's this conflict between states' rights versus the federal government, and this federal government would pass um, new rights. States, typically controlled by Southern segregationist Democrats, would find ways to carve out African Americans to ensure that they did not gain access to those to those resources. For example, Social Security, the Southern Democrats fought to ensure that domestic workers and farm workers were not included in Social Security, which was about half of the African-American workforce at the time, so that African-Americans were not, were not allowed access to these benefits that occurred. So in 1965, when we get Medicare and Medicaid and get the Civil Rights Act, this is when we... Um, start to have the federal government move from being on the side of enforcing segregation and limiting rights to African-Americans to moving to be on the other side, helping to expand rights. So it was really now until 1965 that government was actually working to expand rights to African-Americans. But even here, we still see uh, efforts to derail that progress, for example, with the Affordable Care Act and States being able to um, successfully winning the right to determine whether or not to expand Medicaid. Many southern states, the same states that had been that were slaveholding states and the same states that had been bringing uh, segregationist policies into federal attempts to improve um, access to resources for African-Americans. Those states were the states that did not expand Medicaid, which meant that disproportionately 
African-Americans who live in those states were not given access to those benefits. So what are, in terms of uh, public health indicators, uh, the way this uh, long-term impact of of slavery is still manifesting itself? So I've I've often said that, you know, population health, uh, health disparities in particular, health inequalities, is really the outward manifestation of underlying societal inequities. So when we have inequities that occur within our policymaking segregation being perhaps the the best example of that, when you have that, you'll see that the health status of populations will always track along with that. So even now, if you look at sections of cities that were redlined back in the 1930s, those sections of the cities still have the worst health outcomes 80 years later. So it is because... uh we have a kind of dual public health system, one for the descendants of former slaves and one for the rest of the population, or at least uh, the most affluent part of the population? Well, I wouldn't phrase it exactly that way. It's that we have, we have multiple healthcare systems in this country, and some systems are better than others. Some systems are better run than others. When you look at the distribution by race of who falls into which of these systems, African-Americans disproportionately are in the systems that are uh, less effective and have and, and under-resourced. And it had been until, I would say, until uh, Medicare and Medicaid that when uh, these systems came online you know, that was supported by federal dollars, that you would uh, often see that they were southern states were allowed to control the federal dollars in their states and ensure that they were used in segregationist ways to ensure that African-Americans did not get access to those same resources. So what can we do, uh, Tom? Because the, the, the health inequalities are, are clear, they're there, they're exactly as you, you describe them. But how, what can we do to uh, go into a public health system which uh, get rid of this I, heritage? I think the, what we can do now is realize that the work that we do in public health, we cannot do this work in silos, that the racial disparities that we see in health are part of a cycle of what I call four great disparities that all cause each other and are caused by each other. And if we don't solve all four together, we're not going to resolve any one of them. And these four disparities are, of course, health disparities, but then there are wealth disparities, disparities in who controls wealth, There are disparities in educational attainment, who gains access to quality education and who's best able to benefit from that access. And then there are disparities in criminal justice. And by this, I'm talking about both mass incarceration and I'm talking about over-aggressive policing, which leads to communities that are pretty much designed to produce ill health. And so, and when you mention uh, mass incarceration, I would like to have your opinion on that, Tom. Uh, it seems to me that there's a domain where there is a real continuity uh, since slavery. I mean, after civil war, there was uh, forced labor, then there's been, you know, segregation and... Uh, and today, mass incarceration, it seems to me that you can find a continuum there. Basically, the sub-narrative of all of this is how do you can, how do you get access to labor at a low cost so that you can build wealth? So first you do it through slavery by basically stealing labor, right? You basically kidnap people from Africa, 
you bring them to the other side of the planet, you steal their labor from them and not pay them for their labor, and you build wealth around that. When slavery ends, you have all of this surplus labor. What do you do with it? Well, you find other ways to make money off of these people. When slavery no longer is tenable, incarceration was one of the ways to do that. If people who are incarcerated is the only group of people in this country where we can still take their labor from them and they can be forced to work free. So by criminalizing populations, criminalizing individuals, you're able to uh, make money off of them still. Yeah. And I think that's what shows the continuity and uh, the fact that we're still living uh, with the long-term consequences of what happened in 1619. Thank you very it's much. My pleasure. Very really much appreciate your time. Goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Let's now call Susan Reverby, who is Marion Butler, Macklin Professor Emerita in the History of Ideas, Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Alfredo. Tell me, Susan, when slavery was abolished, you know, during the Civil War, what happened for the public health of the former slaves? Well, remember, first of all, that most slaves um, still lived in the, in the rural South. The Great Migration out of the rural South of African Americans doesn't really happen until after World War I. So you've got 50 years of people still living pretty much in the same area of the United States. And there is, at that point, a very, very undeveloped public health system in the South, in part because of anger about federal control and the lack of money. So there was very little public health developed, even for whites or blacks, in the post-Civil War period. And remember, this is a people who have now been displaced from whatever health care was available on the plantations um, that were provided, however limited, by plantation owners. One author actually has said, Jim Downs has said, that this, there was this large biological crisis in the United States in the late 19th century of people who were bereft of any kind of sanitation, of basic public health and medical care completely. In lieu of state involvement in public health, what you have the beginning of um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is voluntary organizations, a lot of them run by women, actually out of the big cities, trying to teach basic public health and sanitation to people. Remember, this is a period in where the height of Jim Crow, there's very little schooling, um, people are working on the land, and so there's very little developed public health for them, except that's being organized, in fact, by the black community communities as much as they can throughout the parts of the South, more in the urban settings and some around universities like Tuskegee, which was then an institute. But those kinds of um, efforts were being made. Some of the work being done by the 1920s, you start to see some movement toward a little bit of state involvement in public health. So Eunice Rivers, for example, the nurse who gets involved and is the major figure in the Tuskegee syphilis study is one of the first black 
public health nurses in the South. And in the 20s, before the syphilis study began, one of her major jobs was to go around and record um, births and deaths. They weren't even keeping track of um, the statistics on births and deaths in the black community at all. So that was one of her first jobs, actually, out of nursing school in the early 20s. So what you get in the interwar years between First World War and the Second World War is what's called the Great Migration. As people, mechanization comes in, there's less need for physical labor on the in the cotton fields in particular. And so you have this migration of families out of the rural South into the West and the northern cities like Chicago or New York. And then you get, of course, enormous overcrowding in the poorer neighborhoods in that area. And so the issues of public health are really tied to the situation of difficulty getting jobs, discrimination, racism, and very, very poor housing. So the same kinds of difficulties that we saw with immigrants at the turn of the century increases with the migration of millions of African Americans out of the South into urban ghettos, essentially. So, so that period, that, that exactly same period is the, is a period of public health revolution for the white population. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. that's the time where life expectancy is going to increase, uh, housing is improved. I mean, uh, you have, uh, domestic equipment, you have fridge, you have, etc. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. that's the whole transformation, but, Actually, public health failed to do that for the African-American population. Mostly. There just is less um, attempts at doing that. There's some efforts at demonstration projects. For example, there's something called the East Harlem Demonstration Project that's mostly run by public health nurses in the 20s and 30s that attempts to coordinate both public health care and you know, medical care in one community in parts of Harlem. But there's very little outreach. And then, of course, the Depression happens, right? So states have very, very little money, and it cuts back on the kind of help you can get. So, for example, in the South, actually, it's interesting, in the 30s, the county public health official has to borrow vaccines from the supply of the of Tuskegee Institute's medical department, actually, at their hospital, because the state doesn't have anything. I mean, there's just so little funding. So at a period where it expands and sort of housing gets a little bit better, it's still enormous overcrowding because of what's called redlining and segregation into um, very overcrowded situations in urban cities. And and unemployment uh, hits uh, the African-American population much uh, harder than the white population, right? Exactly, exactly. So that adds more stress in people's lives. It means more people are living together. One of the things you see, for example, in Harlem is literally people would rent out beds and people would sleep, you know, midnight to lunchtime. And then the next person would come in and sleep in the same bed from lunchtime to, to midnight. So you see just an enormous amount of the kind of overcrowding that leads to things like you know, easily passing tuberculosis and flu, which are, you know, we talk a lot about syphilis and venereal disease, but actually the biggest killers in the South, um, in particular in the North in these years are flu and pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so what do we know about the period that uh, immediately follows the Second World War, you know, the economic boom, I mean, the um, large employment? We know that there is a growing African-American working class during those years, did it also impact uh, their life conditions? Yeah, it starts to get a little bit better um, 
clearly there's more some unionization for example people get jobs especially women actually during the war in plants so remember for the united states in general is say for women the largest employment for women is domestic service until 1960 isn't that amazing? <laughs> and uh, so it comes late. So even in white and black communities, there's still women who are working or mostly working in some kind of domestic service. So what happens afterwards, other things expand slowly. I mean, for a long time, black women couldn't get and remember, we're still talking about an era of segregation until the late 60s. So women couldn't, black women couldn't get jobs in department stores. They wouldn't be hired as secretaries. I mean, I worked... In Chicago, for example, in 1966 for Encyclopedia Britannica as a secretary, and I had a black woman who'd come up from the South. We worked together in this office pool, and the other white women wouldn't even talk to us. I mean, she and I were the only ones, um, you know, there mm. together. I mean, other people wouldn't talk to us at all. And so there still was this sort of assumptions about job limitations of what could happen. But public health, of course... Starts to expand, and in the 60s and 70s, what you get is the move towards some of the community health centers that get developed both by um, differing programs within the federal government. So you see the beginning of rural health care um, a little bit more in the south in places in Mississippi, like the Delta, some work going done in the Delta. You see community health centers being built in places like New York in poorer communities that do try to do some kind of outreach. There's federal money in the 60s for home health aid kinds of programs in the beginning of trying to think through how to create the trust that might make it possible to, to teach basic public health to people. But these still sound like uh, 19th century public health for the rest of the population. I mean, uh, do, do, do we have an idea of uh, the impact of those uh, initiatives? You know, it's interesting. Some of what it happened is what it does. I, mean, I actually had this conversation with um, Jack Geiger, who's one of the people who founded sure. uh, this health center at Mount Bayou in Mississippi. And he said, you know, the biggest impact we had was that we got people jobs and then they got better jobs, their children got educated and got out. Susan, one last question. There is one issue I'd like to know what you think about its impact on uh, the health of the African-American community. And this is the question of the so-called mass incarceration. I mean, there are mm -hmm. so many relatives of African-American people who are incarcerated and we know this affects the whole family. How important would you say this factor is today? In, uh, I think for that community. I think it's enormously um, important. I mean, think about, for example, what happens in a family when both either the mother or the father, right, are incarcerated. So where are the children being raised and by whom or what kind of um, money is available for the family? What happens to incarcerated, formerly incarcerated people once they get out and where they're can be limited about where they can be, where they can live, how they get jobs, what they can do, how they support their families. And we know that there is a public health impact of that. The other question is what happens in terms of medical care, even in prisons. You know, for example, there's very poor dental care in, in prison situations so that people come out without teeth. They pull teeth rather than provide implants. Obviously. And so people lose their teeth. The medical care is pretty horrendous and has been for a really long time, although people are making real efforts to improve it. And so people sometimes come out of prison sicker than they would have been otherwise. And I think that 
importance of trying to really look at getting people out who have nonviolent crimes, of, of freeing elders, for example, people who have been in prison for a really long time, to try to get people back into the community to be support for their families is really, really important. And if we're going to change the situation for African Americans, it's a major issue that public health has to be involved in. Okay. Susan, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for, for asking me to do this. Errante voy recorriendo mil mundos. Hoy busco a mi madre terrenal. All right. At the end of these interviews, I'm struck by the close connection between the slavery past and the lingering health inequalities affecting people from African-American descent. The slow but successful political emancipation process starting in 1863 when slavery was abolished and going to the Voting Act and the desegregation of the 60s masks a denial to former slaves and their offspring of access to the public health services that were available to other citizens at each point in time. And this is true for at least 100 years if things start to change with Medicaid and Medicare in 1965. In the 19th century, the health services available in plantations were not even replaced. After the Civil War, segregation, poor housing, lack of services, low-quality education and care followed African Americans in their great migration to northern cities. These unequal opportunities for public health services persist in some ways today. But there is also a second pathway connecting slavery to present-day public health. The continuous over-exploitation of African Americans as a free, low-cost workforce. After slavery came forced labor in the 19th century and the mass incarceration in the 20th century. These punitive institutions have determined the health status of incarcerated people's families at large. This continuous public health deficit translates into the health inequities that we observe today. Yes, these inequities conflict with the ideals of democracy that are also 400 years old in North America. But the unequal treatment of white and black bodies was justified by preposterous theories viewing the black body as different from the white body with, for example its alleged resistance to heat and hard labor, but intolerance to freedom. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Michael Costanza and Emily D'Agostino for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast about the music. Francis Jacob wrote, The Cruel Logic of Slavery ruled on the entire American continent, North, Central, and South. Today, everywhere on this continent, the African culture 
has an outstanding voice, from jazz to samba, from tango to soul, from merengue to cumbia, the always vibrant Afro-American culture is the heritage of a troubled past. The band Chinchivi and its founders, the Balumbrosio brothers, represent the beating heart of the Afro-Peruvian culture. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH and for more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on Android or iPhone app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Spotify or on any other podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on the AJPH websites for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. See you next month for a podcast about ways of financing healthcare with a discussion about single-payer, multi-payer, and state-based financing systems and their relevance for the United States. Thank you for listening. Ah,